You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. This rainy day and friends here in person, so glad uh, we can be together. That you brave the uh, elements here today. It's it's a gift. It's a gift to have you. My name is Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach, uh, and my pronouns are he, him. Uh, City Church, we're a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. It's who we are. It's kind of who we're becoming. It's who we want to be, um, and it's it's a long journey. It's a long journey for each of us. And it's a long journey for us together. And I'm glad to be on it with you. So thanks for being here. Um, one of the things we like to do is we like to pray for our kids. Um, and so I'd like to invite up Megan Williams, who's going to pray for our kiddos. And then she and some other fearless folks are going to go out and uh, enjoy the puddles. <laughs> it's going to be good. All right, let's pray. Thanks, God, for... Uh, the kids that are in our community, whether they're here or on Zoom, um, or if they attend the school, uh, we just thank you that they remind us um, to be free and hopefully live just a shame-free life. Uh, may we, as adults, just bless them and invite them into um, a community that is uh, shame-free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, Mel. Megan, we'll see you. Whatever your name was, you changed it between when you came up and when you go down. So, uh, And I'd like to invite up uh, our other fearless co-pastor, Brenna Rubio. Oh, and the kids. Kids, like kids, you can go and have fun. Sorry, I just totally lost my train. Like, I don't know what we're doing. Can I steal that? You're doing Here, you can go behind me. Our usual, um, you know, just incredibly smooth transitions. It's so good to be with you guys. Yes, I'm Brenna Rubio. My pronouns are she, her. And this morning, I am so excited uh, to be co-preaching with a friend, Nicole Makatrau, who's actually very clear. She is not co-preaching. I forgot. I violated our agreement. Nicole is sharing some stories with us this morning. Here, do you want to grab these? Yeah. Here. I'll grab one. Yeah, we're going to be cozy this morning. We're going to keep it casual. You might want to move your stand a little to the side, Nicole. It can make it a little bit. Yeah. But so for those of you who don't know Nicole, and she is a great person to know, um, she is an environmental scientist with the city of Long Beach. That is her day state job. State of California. Oh, excuse me. State of California. <laughs> state of California. She lives, you know, but yeah. So state of California and with City Church, she is actually one of our leaders. She's part of our board. She joined over this last year, and she is part of our connectors team, uh, and especially helping us think about local mission, so ways that we partner with other amazing groups all over the city. Yeah. Thank you yeah. <laughs> for the introduction. <laughs> so it's so good to have um, Nicole. The other thing, the reason it's fun for the two of us to get to do this here together is that we are a team of Enneagram Ones. So for the yeah, for those of you those of you who know what the Enneagram is, and if you don't, that's totally fine too. But an Enneagram one is a perfectionist. Very appropriate for <laughs> morality police. Yes, because we're gonna be talking about morality police today. And so as Enneagram ones, our perfectionism is sometimes directed out at other people. We're so sorry. Um, and it is often directed inward at ourselves. Um, that as as harsh as we can be towards others, we are ten times harsher 
often with ourselves. Yes. Sadly. I would say this is very accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so both of us felt like this, this conversation where we've been over the last few weeks thinking about freeing Jesus, being able to see Jesus for who he really is versus how he is so often presented to us by the church, uh, just in so many different ways. We free Jesus, and then we get to free ourselves. And so that is really what Nicole and I both acknowledge that we need when it comes to this idea of freeing Jesus from the morality police. So you may be wondering, like, what, what does that even mean? Or maybe you're like, I think I know. But here's a great example, just to kick us off, of what it means to free Jesus from the morality police. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we had one of our story swap lunches uh, over at Bill's house after church. And story swap is just a time where we say, hey, people who are new around City Church, let's come and swap stories. You know, you're going to sit at tables and you could share stories with each other. Um, and then we'll get to share some of the church's story with you too, because we, what we ask people to do is take post-its and write their most honest questions for us. Say like, hey, you should have some questions about a new church, right? Like, don't assume we've got it all together. We don't, you know, um, just, just ask all your questions. And because it's on a post-it, you know, no matter how shy or introverted or how like just kind of like rude even you may think the question is, just get it out there. We want your questions. So people do that. Um, and one of the questions that was shared in our last story swap was such a good question in so many ways, right? It was a tender question. I think it was a vulnerable question, probably. I, of course, don't even know who wrote it. But the question that was put on the post-it was, what is the church's stance on a gay couple undergoing in vitro fertilization? It was a question they wanted to ask before they figured out, is City Church the church for us? And from one perspective, I mean, this is just a question that makes sense, right? Because most likely, you have to think, probably this, this is a gay couple, and, and this is a couple who's thinking about in vitro fertilization. Or I suppose it's also possible that this is somebody who they have friends who have been in this situation. And, and most likely, what they have seen is a church that has a stance, right? The church has probably a very decided, and one would think probably, you know, um, no kind of stance on maybe just being a gay couple. And then second, on in vitro fertilization. So it makes sense. You're like, well, isn't that, that's what churches do, right? They're the morality police. They tell you yes or no. What is the church's stance? I know if, uh, if you've grown up like me in the church, it's, it's very easy to look at the church as the morality police. They have a lot of stances on things. Mm -hmm. So we'll typically take our questions to the pastors Mm -hmm. and the pastors will draw the line and say this is right or this is wrong and mm -hmm. if they don't give us a yes or no typically the community will right. someone will right <laughs> and uh somebody will be very quick probably to let you know what jesus yes. says about this <laughs> and so if if you were exposed to this a lot then you will tend to internalize it and start self-policing yourself mm-hmm and you will go into a new church and you'll assume that that's their job, right? And that they are going to do that to you at some point, so at least let's get it out there in the open, which totally makes sense. Except that standing there in that story swap, we were kind of like, well, actually, we don't want to do that. I mean, I personally just like, I, I don't feel 
equipped. I don't feel like I have all the answers. I don't feel like I've heard from God on every complicated situation out there to be able to say, here's the clear yeses and here are the clear noes. Like, what if instead of us being the morality police, what if we were just companions on the journey? What if we were just people who could walk with you and, and ask questions and say, what have you been hearing from God? And what, is that, what does that mean to you? And tell me what some of your deep questions are. What are your, some of your concerns? What draws you? All these things, right? Do, is the job of the church really to be the morality police? Is that how Jesus actually, what he demonstrated? We don't think so, but we want to dive into that together today. So our friend and our, um, our slide projecting wonderful um, tech operator, Joe Hermita, has agreed to come out from behind the magic curtain and read scripture hey, for us today. Would you <laughs> <Yeah>. welcome Joe? <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd be willing and able, if you would like to stand in honor of the reading of scripture. Hi to my Zoom family. <laughs> As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as, he, as, long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and, was, and washed and came home seeing. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Joe. Um. I love this story, and not just because, but it certainly doesn't hurt for that. Just like, just wonderfully disgusting detail of Jesus <laughs> spitting in the earth and making mud to smear on someone's eye. I mean, that's just delightfully disgusting, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but it's, it's such a wonderful introduction to this idea of the morality police, because do you notice just how smoothly the story starts with the disciples just asking Jesus that question. Hey, Rabbi, who sinned? He's blind. Who sinned? It's just, it's, it's an assumption they're making. There's no question in their mind. If they see something in the world and it seems broken, it seems wrong, out of place. They see, um, they see someone who's struggling. Okay, there must be sin, and this must be punishment. Somebody sinned, and somebody was punished. The only question is who. That is how the world works. Um, and that perspective that things are just that easy, that simple, that black and white, it's a really tempting one because it just, it makes the world uncomplicated. It means like that maybe we can stay in control because if we can look at something like somebody who is hurting, somebody who is disabled, and we can say, well, 
clearly, that's because somebody messed up. So if I don't mess up, I can keep myself safe or I can keep my family safe, right? That's, it's just a, a very simple way of looking at the world. And in a similar way, it makes sense that sometimes people, we want, the, we want our religion to work that way. We want to be able to go to our religious leaders and have them tell us, here's the yes or no answer. Here's the black and white, you know, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do to stay on God's good list where only good things happen to you. Um, I mean, it's, it's a childish perspective. And that's not actually bad for a child to have. It's a reasonable first step for anyone, right? To, to want some simple, simple ideas about how the world works, but it's not where we're supposed to stay, right? We're actually supposed to grow up. So then you see the next, how Jesus responds, and he just completely says, I reject your premise, <laughs> right? Your question doesn't actually make sense to me. This is not a question of sin and punishment. That's not actually a mature way of looking at the world. The mature way of looking at the world that Jesus demonstrates is he's just looking around for opportunities to celebrate, to heal, to love, to do good. He says, hey, while as long as it's day, we do the works of him who sent me. And those are works of love. They're works of healing. He's not looking to condemn. He's not looking to punish. That's not the point. It's just, as so often happens, he looks and he sees and he's, oh, here is someone that I could touch with mercy. I could touch with compassion. So why wouldn't I do that? One kind of side note, but I think it's important here, um, is think, looking at this passage, and it would be so easy for us to come to this story with an ableist kind of perspective as well, to say that when Jesus says, hey, you know why he's blind? It's so that God's work can be shown in his life. And say, ah, that's because Jesus is going to heal him. And that's God's work. It's, it's the healing. It's when the man was blind and becomes seeing. That's how God's works are being shown in his life. It doesn't actually say that. Right? That's an assumption we can read onto the story. What if God's works were being shown all the way through in his, in his whole life? There were probably so many ways that God showed up in his life while he was still blind. Um, this is just one more way that Jesus is saying God's work is going to be shown through his life, all of our lives. The stuff that's hard, as well as the stuff that's more obviously, typically exciting. God shows up in all of it. A little uh, story about myself and where I grew up. So I, as, as Brenna said, I'm an Enneagram one, and I hardcore live into that <laughs> stereotype, I guess. Um, I grew up in a perfectionistic Christian home, probably with other Enneagram ones and threes, most likely. And Threes being the overachievers. They, yes. So, I mean, in combination, it's probably 
terrible dynamic, but <laughs> unhealthy ones at least. So um, this was my home. I, I grew up with my mom mostly and my grandma, and they they really uh, pressed upon me to be a good child and a successful child, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, they were very Christian. We had gone to church my whole life, and the church that I grew up in very much lived into this sin is punishment idea. Um, and I grew up hearing the chisme of the church, which is the gossip of the church, if you don't know that word. Uh, and typically there was stories that went along with why something bad happened. Mm -hmm. So some examples I can think of is, a lot of them had to do with tithing, of course. So if you don't give money to the church, all kinds of bad things could possibly happen to you. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Made for very strong, uh, you know, preachings on tithing, right? So I, I remember as a child hearing, oh, uh, they lost their home. That's because they don't tithe enough to the church. And it was like very easy to set up a reason why something bad happened. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, something that was really pressed upon me, and when I was growing up, and probably for a lot of you that did grow up in this, was purity culture. So uh, if, if a young woman got pregnant at, before the age that I guess they wanted to or out of wedlock, what all, all these things. Oh, it's because her parents are divorced. Oh, it's because of this. So it, there was a reason why this bad thing happened um, and it was easy to show that this was a form of punishment. Mm -hmm. So uh, it made things very easy for me as a child to uh, keep me on the straight and narrow road because I didn't want bad things to happen to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of this morality bar that I would set, like I had discussed with my best friend, and we had both come to the same conclusion, like as a child, we only felt like we could go to heaven if we were a martyr, because that's the stories that they would tell, right? Like if you died for Jesus, that was the ultimate, way. like so auto like heaven. So you a literal martyr. Oh yes, like there was, you had to die for Jesus. <laughs> and there were likely gonna be situations that would come up. Oh yeah, I was yeah. prepared at all moments all right. to say that I believe in Jesus and die, you know? <laughs> Those are the kind of stories that they told us when we were kids. So um, as you could quite imagine, this sort of uh, combination of environmental factors um, doesn't necessarily set you up mentally for a lot of success. Um, there could be some challenges. Yes. And, uh, you know, we'll get through this a little bit more in the story. But um, I was starting to feel some of those effects early on. Um, early on in my life where mental health started to become a problem. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is so hard. When you're already in a church environment um, that plays into some things that probably already have like a biological, chemical kind of component going on in your body, and now yeah. these two things are going to, yeah. Well, we'll talk more about that. So, so often when we look at this story of the blind man who is given back his sight by Jesus, we don't go into the rest of the story. And partly, I think, because it's really, really long. It's this long chapter in the book of John. And the reason it is so long is because the morality police are such a big part of the story, and they go at it hard. And they go at it with a lot of different people, and it is just like a dog with a bone that happens here in this story with the morality police. So just to give you a little bit more of the story, 
in verses 14 through 16. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud, you know, that delightful spitty mud, and opened the man's eyes, it was a Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Okay, so now we're seeing it. Talking about sin, which, by the way, can have consequences. Well, keeping the Sabbath was a big one in Jesus' Mm -hmm. day, right? That's a big one. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, including spitting in the mud and spreading it on someone's eyes. And then, actually, when, when the man was healed, you know, that he had gotten up and, I mean, that he walked off, right? That was a problem, too. He was breaking. They were all breaking Sabbath. Um, and, but it's, it's kind of amazing, right, as those of us who are just listening to the story, because you're like, friends, I think you might be focusing on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. right just a little bit just a little bit (laughs) we might be focusing on the wrong thing like somebody was just healed it was a miracle that's kind of a big deal maybe maybe we focus on that but no they were just it was all about did Jesus break the Sabbath did he break the rule because they thought of themselves in so many ways as God's enforcers right God needed these religious leaders to go around and make sure that the rules were or were not being followed. And if they weren't being followed, well, they were going to be the ones potentially to meet out the punishment. You know, if God hadn't already sent down the lightning bolt or whatever or struck someone with blindness, um, they would take care of it. They would take care of the punishment. And it's just, it's honestly amazing to me reading through the passage, though it shouldn't be because I feel it in myself sometimes. In fact, one of, one of the clearest um, signs for me that I am slipping into my unhealthy Enneagram One ways, that I'm getting into a sort of rigid, you know, this is how the world is supposed to be mentality, that I am becoming the morality police, whether towards someone else or towards myself, is how much I grind. Like how much I can just beat the same subject to death and try to convince myself that I'm right and they're wrong or that other part of me is wrong, Mm -hmm. right? I spend so much time and so much energy like these religious leaders were, not because they wanted to love, but because they wanted to control, because they wanted to punish. And in fact, Jesus had been on kind of their watch list for a while, So this was a prime opportunity. They might be able to get Jesus. Going back a little bit to to my story, we're going to be weaving in and out today. So (laughs) Um, all of these things coming together and setting up my environment uh, really internalized this sinus punishment mentality. And... uh, I became my own morality police. Like n- nobody really needed to do it for me. I was it. I was one of those kids where you didn't have to punish me. I was there, like in the corner, like why would I do this? It's just <laughs> self-punishing myself, right? And and for my mom, this was very helpful. I had a, a, a single mom um, who didn't have a whole lot of time to look look out for me in in this way. So I'm, I'm sure from her eyes, it was like, oh, I have a very good kid. Like I don't got to tell them anything. I, I, they have good grades and all this stuff. And in my, to myself, I w- had been setting up this like 
morality list, which doesn't even make any sense anymore because on the morality list was like get A grade A's, like get straight A's, stay out of trouble, uh, be pure, uh, which was very a big concept, I guess. It could be anything, be pure. No cussing, no talking back. All of these things were now on the morality list. And like this is a morality list that like God would be excited about. Oh yeah. Right? Like God <laughs> wanted you to get straight A's. <laughs> yes. Okay. Just making sure. Yes. So I set this own morality list for myself and uh, it, it led ultimately to me feeling very prideful and superior to other people, right? Because I would hear from all the cheesemen in the church, right? That, that you can't control, it's just a wildfire happening in the church. Um, and so I would be like, oh yeah, no, I, I get good grades or yeah, oh, no, I'm I'm not pregnant, you know, like these were the, the bars set for me. And it, it really bred this, this sense of I'm better than people, which, which leads to a lot of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And I had to make sure I was perfect. And uh, yet in some ways I still didn't fit the morality perfection bubble that I'd set for myself. Mm -hmm. I had my divorced mom and I had depression, and she had sent me to therapy by this point, you know, and uh, um, it, it was hard to be so perfect all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is hard to be perfect all the time, like yeah. actually kind of impossible. Yeah, right? and uh, I know from from the beginning, I had always had uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies, although I didn't at that time know what that was. Uh, leading from all these environmental factors and even my own internal factors, right? Uh, it had set me up to, to go down this, this mental path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this uh, a bunch over the last couple of weeks, but both Nicole and I are actually just so excited we get to talk about like mental illness yeah. today. Because that's one of those things that feels like so often we don't talk about in the church. Uh, or if it is talked about, it's in this way that's kind of like, oh, like you're depressed, you need to pray more, right? Like, oh, you have anxiety? Well, I'm pretty sure there's a verse, <laughs> you know, that tells you you're not <laughs> supposed to, you know, so I should not be taking my anxiety pills. Like I should just be casting all my, my worries on God. Right? Yeah. Um, I've definitely been prayed for. Yeah. You had some <laughs> of those, like, um, and so it's actually really wonderful, like, again, as two people who actually struggle with mental illness in different ways, to be able to say, like, actually, this is part of our stories, and we can, we can judge ourselves, but maybe there's a different path. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a path forward that has more grace for all of us. Um, Okay, so let's keep with the story of the morality police and what is happening with them. Okay, so again, they, they're the reason this chapter is so incredibly long because they will not give it up. So their next step uh, in, in trying to really get Jesus, is there a way that we can get him? We can prove that he screwed up, he broke the rules, and then we'll be able to punish him. Is that they go to the man's parents to say, hey, you, you're going to know what's happening. You're going to know what happened with your son um, because the man who had been healed was sort of resisting them a bit. Actually, he's 
he's really cool. We're going to see more of him as we go through the story. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to read a few more verses. They, the morality police, still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. (sighs) Okay. His parents are afraid. They get called in front of the religious leaders, uh, and the, the religious leaders want to ask them questions. They're trying to figure out the truth of the matter. Like, they haven't already. They've been told the truth, like, a lot of times already, but they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. And so they call the parents. And the parents know what is happening. They are smart people. They know how the system works. And so they know that they have not been called in front of the morality police, um, you know, to be fed milk and cookies. Like, (laughs) there's a good chance that they're going to get in trouble. And the chief tool of the morality police then, as of now, is the threat of kicking you out, of shaming you and telling you you're bad, you're contagiously bad, and therefore you can't be part of the community. You are going to be shunned, you're going to be kicked out, you're going to be excluded. And it works to, in one way, right? Like, they're trying to keep people in line, in control. They want people to be afraid of them. Well, it works. The parents are afraid of them. Now, it doesn't work because the parents just lie because that's what people who are afraid do. So does it work to build healthy community? Does it work, you know, to build interpersonal relationships? Does it work to help people grow, heal, build a healthier, more just world? Yeah, probably not. Probably not, right? There's no honesty in this relationship because the relationship is built on power and fear. So... (laughs) They're obviously, you know, the parents are kind of stonewalling them appropriately. And so the morality police, they call again the religious leaders for the son. And you just start to see just how strong he is because he goes toe to toe with them. He's not giving ground. He knows what he's experienced. And I mean, you got to wonder, he's already been pushed to the margins. What is the worst they can do to him? Mm-hmm. Right? He's been living on the margins his whole life. He's never had that sweet spot in the center of community. What can they do to him? So he's like, no, you know, like he actually, later on we're going to hear it. Um, As they keep asking him questions, he says, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Little sass going on there. And so 
I've always skipped over this verse. Like somehow in my head, you know, it's just like the verse says that, okay, so he goes toe-to-toe with him and they tell him to leave. But in the context, right, of what his parents were fearful of, they're not just telling him to leave. They are, in fact, kicking him out. So often in scripture, when somebody is healed physically, it actually starts this process where they're restored to their community. So it's a healing that's not just of their body, but truly is of their whole social fabric, right? That they're restored to the community, but not him, because they actually do it. They say, all right, that's it. Punishment for you. You've sinned and messed up again. You're out. Fast forward a few years into my life where I am in high school at this point, and I think I'm a sophomore in high school, and it, I, I think, what, we're like 15 or 16 at this point, probably, probably less than that, 15, 14, and uh, I don't know, friends are a big deal in high school, and being cool is a big deal in high school. And I had never been cool, just to preface that. <laughs> I was always very I nerdy. I still have never been cool. No, I still. <laughs> I now think I'm cool. I think this is the, the step up we've got. That's growth. <laughs> um, and I, at this point, um, had decided, oh, maybe I want to try to make cooler friends. And also, at this point in life, most most kids were exploring their sexual identity and all of this, and to me, as a very Christian person, this was alarming, and uh, it made it hard to be friends with the same friends that I had had. And a lot of my friends were very artsy, so typically that will be more the scene where things will start to happen, right? So I had uh, <laughs> not The people laughing, they know. <laughs> So I, uh, I had decided, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a jock. I'm going to swim and find new friends. And, yeah, then I can, can do kill two birds with one stone here, uh, avoid the sexually exploring friends and get cooler at the same time, potentially. And so I, I, I did that. And I had found friends. And somehow this was living into this morality list of friendships that I had had now at this point. I was glad you were a swimmer. Yes, and I, I guess not with my artsy friends anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, I guess it was okay. And at some point, those friends, those new friends had decided, oh, we actually don't want this friend that's currently in the group. We're going to try to exclude this one friend. And uh, at that point, I had decided, no, I, I don't want to do that. That feels wrong, mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic given what I had already done, right? And that the result of that was that they then excluded me. Mm. So, yeah, I had I had just been creating this whole scenario that happened, and and to now then be excluded yourself, it really put things into perspective. And in addition to all of this happening, I had still been dealing. I, I just just for awareness, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And at this point, I didn't know what it was, right? Like, I'd just been dealing with this for years, and it had been some of the worst years in high school. Uh, and it was teaching me a lot about how to see others in a way that was just more inclusive and more 
uh, embracing, right? Like maybe more compassionate. More compassionate, definitely. Because here I was trying to be this perfect person with this morality list and whatnot, and somehow I couldn't fix this, right? Mm -hmm. I had no word. I thought I was crazy. So yeah, it it makes it hard to stand on a pedestal when underneath everything is just not okay. And it, I mean, what I'm hearing is that it really, it changed you. Yeah, it did. Yeah, so you had these like two difficult experiences at about the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, one of like, okay, I excluded, but now I'm on the receiving end. Now I'm the one being excluded. Yeah. And then realizing that <laughs> though you'd been working so hard for so long to control everything and control yourself, there was this piece of who you were that was not within your control and felt really messy yeah. and really hard. And maybe other people had stuff that they were going through too yeah. that was really messy and really hard. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how when we connect with our own wounds and our own humanity, it makes it so much easier for us to relate to other people as full people with strengths and weaknesses, with beauty and with brokenness. But when we resist it in ourselves, we judge it within ourselves, we can't help doing it with others. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think we all know that story, right? We can all think of times that yes, we were, we judged. We were the morality police. We were the shunners of someone. And we can also think of those times where it happened to us, whether it was, you know, us doing it to ourselves or other people who had decided um, that we were not, we weren't the people they wanted to be around um, because we had, we were less than mm -hmm. somehow. We had failed some standard. So in our story with the man who had been healed, um, he's kicked out. And what I love is that Jesus hears about it and he goes to find him. Like we could almost end there and it would just be enough, right? He gets kicked out and he's not by himself. Jesus goes to find him. He hears what's happened and he just wants to check on him. He doesn't want him to be alone. But that's, there's still a bit more of the story because, again, they just, they crack me up. The Pharisees are still hanging around. Those Jewish leaders are still hanging around. Like, I mean, you already kicked the man out. Like, come on, give it a rest, people. But no, so they're still there. And, uh, and Jesus just can't help it. He just loves messing with the binaries. He loves messing with the people who think they have it all figured out and think the world is black and white, and, and he knows it's not. He knows that it's a million beautiful rainbow colors, and so he just has to keep poking just a little bit to say, will you see? Could you see? Um, and so what he says is, hey, friend, it's the blind who will see, and those who see who will become blind. Just so nice in Jesus, right? <laughs> like it's just, whew, what does that even mean? But it makes you think. There are people who think they get it, like this religious leader who's still hanging around. They're sure they've got it figured out. They're sure that they're the holy and the wise ones. And they're really just talking and judging themselves in circles, 
like I do when I'm in those moments where I'm slipping into my judgy perfectionist self. And I'm talking just to try and make myself feel better, right? It changes nothing about the situation too. And, and it is like the man when he pushed back and says, why do you keep asking the same questions? Why do you keep going over this? There's a game that we play with ourselves when we're in that headspace. But then there's the alternative. And it's the alternative that the blind man who has become seeing is modeling for us. Because when Jesus comes to find him, the man says, Jesus, I see you, I believe. And he worshiped him. Like, it's not just that he saw physically, he saw, he got it. You know, the, the physical is in so many ways just a metaphor for the spiritual, right? That he sees who Jesus really is. He's seeing reality. And he is the one who is wise. He is the one who is being held up as the example. Though the story starts with the disciples who go, clearly, this man or his parents must have sinned, right? But no, now he's the one who's being lifted up as the example, the one who's wise. To wrap up the story from before, uh, I ended up going back to my friends, who so graciously accepted me again. <laughs> like, I, I had never really told them why I was leaving or anything. I just kind of was like, all right, bye, guys. And uh, I, it was, it would have been so understanding had they not decided to accept me back. And it was very redeeming for me to be able to experience these friendships again. Because at that point, I had decided I wasn't going to exclude anybody because of my own experience and what I had done and uh, what, what I was going through, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the, the rest of my, it really set me up for, for a great rest of my high school because I, I was dedicated to loving people and embracing people. And it was, it was just a huge shift in how I interacted with people and really knocked me off my pedestal, really, <laughs> which is great. And, and it, it, it was painful, but also a blessing. And I like to look at my OCD in that way, in that it is, it's not something I'd wish on anybody, but it has taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. And it has really made it to where I can see people. Mm -hmm. You can see people now, because it's just so different when you're yeah. seeing from a place of compassion versus a place of judgment yeah. and fear, right? Definitely. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until, so I'd gone through the rest of high school not really knowing what it was. I didn't tell anybody because I thought they would think I was crazy, probably lock me up and stuff, right? And it wasn't until like I started college and Google searching was just getting better because <laughs> that's really, really what helped me out here. And, and I'm like an expert Google searcher. At, at some point, I had put in my symptoms, because it had been years of trying to figure out what the heck it was, right? And then I finally put in my symptoms, and it was probably like 2 in the morning where I wasn't able to sleep that night or something again. And it, the search result was like, oh, obsessive compulsive disorder. This is what the symptoms are. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That's me. That's me. And I had like resigned myself to tell my mom the next day because I had a word for it, and I didn't feel like... I was 
going to get cast out, really. Yeah. And uh, so I think I started therapy when I was like 20, specifically for OCD. And uh, it's come a really, really long way. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, whenever we talk about mental health, of course it's not, it's not a simple thing, right? You know, I mean, I imagine that the journey since you started therapy and everything that's come along with that, um, I imagine there's been a lot more growth and steps and, uh, and for both of us, right? Yeah. There's, there's still continual unlearning and challenging of the morality police, of, the, of that voice of judgment and accusation yeah, that is seated so deep inside. But I think as we were thinking about, you know, what we would hope for all of us uh, coming out of the story from the Bible, the story of Jesus, from Nicole's story, is this sense of, of hope, of that song that the Dolmages helped lead us in in the beginning, that idea that there is freedom. There is freedom from the morality police, whether the, the ones who are out there and have told you that you aren't good enough, um, or the ones inside yourself that, that lock you into a cycle of, of shaming and judgment of yourself and of others. That we don't have to be the religious leaders shaking our fingers at everyone. Um, and we don't have to accept the judgments of those religious people who would other, of, other us, who would shame us. That there is freedom to be found in the compassionate gaze of Jesus. He says, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to heal. I'm here to love, to lift up, and to celebrate. And that's the invitation for all of us today. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. Our friend Louis